0: As Ben noted a second ago, none of us deserve to be members of a local congregation, do we? We don't have the credentials. I think these brothers and sisters probably heard me say in the Exploring Cornerstone class, one of the things that's unique about the church is you have to be bad to get in. (laughs) You have to be bad to get in. And you have to know that you are and know that you need help. And I think one of the things to be aware of as we approach Um, Every worship service together, every encounter uh, with Christ is that we do so wholly and completely on grace. Um, We we do so resting and dependent upon what he has uh, provided for us, that he is the one who qualifies us. And even as we received this morning a challenge from the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter one, he's challenging us based on what it is that Christ has already accomplished for us. And he wants to invite you into a deeper experience of that and knowledge of it this morning as we look together at God's Word. So if you will, either take your copies of God's Word in hand and turn to Philippians chapter 1 or read along uh, with me in the bulletin. We'll pick up the reading at the end of verse 18 in Philippians chapter 1 and read to verse 26. Verse 26. This is God's Word. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or And continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we come now before this, your word, having read it in your presence and now attending to it, we would ask, Father, that you would speak to us powerfully through this word, that you would grant to us your Holy Spirit, and that through him we might read and mark and learn and inwardly digest all that you would have us to know and that you would charge us with all that we are to do. We want to honor Christ in our bodies, whether by life or by death. By this passage and through this time in your word, would you make that reality real to each of us again? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I mentioned in the first service this morning the well-known English poet, writer, um Lexicographer Samuel Johnson. Some of you will know his dictionary of the English of English literature. Some of you will know his biography, maybe the biography best known by that James Boswell wrote on that great English figure uh, in the seventeen hundreds. He was known for his aphorisms. He was known for his quotes. He was a kind of C.S. Lewis of his age. He was kind of a G.K. Chesterton of his age. He was able to compact a tremendous amount of truth into short phrases, and with a stickiness that kind of just stayed with you once you had heard of of one of his of one of his phrases. And I ran across one again this week that. Um, I had long read and and had forgotten about and was glad to be reminded of it's quoted in Boswell's biography of Samuel Johnson and he's reflecting on uh, the end of life and and Johnson actually says this he says depend on it sir when a man knows that he will be hanged in a fortnight it concentrates his mind wonderfully (laughs) such a great phrase It concentrates his mind wonderfully when he knows he's going to be hanged in a fortnight. And that's so true. Uh, Maybe you have had the grace, and I do mention it this way, the grace to stare death in the face and to have overwhelming clarity over what's important in life. And then by God's grace live. Maybe you you know that gracious experience. Maybe it was when you're Your car was spinning out of control on the interstate in a car accident or a fearful diagnosis that turned out to be something different than initially expected. It could be any number of things that causes us to stare death in the face. Part of what Johnson is acknowledging and recognizing in this quote is that there is a clarity of mind and a clarity of heart that comes when we begin to see eternal things come into view when our lives hang in the balance. The Apostle Paul here in the letter to the Philippians is staring death in its face. He is there in a Roman prison, chained to a guard. He doesn't know whether his trial that is looming is going to lead to his acquittal and release. Or whether the next guard who walks in the doors is going to say, it's time, off with your head. He doesn't know what he's about to experience, but he knows that in a very real sense, his life hangs in the balance. And what I'd like to suggest is that in Philippians chapter 1, and all the way through the letter of Philippians, is that that reality wonderfully concentrates Paul's mind. It helps him focus upon the things that are most needful, and it helps him focus towards the Philippians and his ministry to the church at Philippi to train them to think in light of eternity before the face of God, to consider the things most important, and to live our lives by that light. As we look at Philippians 1, 18 through 26 today, I want to... Ask you to hold those eternal realities before your heart and before your mind. Ask the Lord to grant you the kind of clarity that the Apostle Paul gives here over what's meaningful in life. And begin to maybe clear away the things that seem important but aren't. The clutter that we so bombard our lives with here in 21st century America. And notice that the one thing that's necessary is where we need to come back to over and over and over again. What are these one things that are necessary? What is it that Paul is calling us to in this passage? And God through Paul here in these verses together. Well, I want to start by um, suggesting to you that what Paul gives to us in this passage is confidence in the midst of uncertain times. He has confidence in the midst of uncertain times. Notice this in verses 19 and 20. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Notice his confidence. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. Do you hear the confidence of the Apostle Paul? A confidence is not based upon circumstances. His circumstances are completely uncertain, but a confidence is there nonetheless, based in the realities of eternity. When you see Paul's language there, he says, I know this will turn out for my deliverance. Maybe the initial thought that comes into your mind is, how does he know that? How does he know that this is going to turn out for my deliverance? And maybe you're your reflection and your question around hearing that from the Apostle Paul is, you hear him saying, he is going to be freed from prison pretty soon. I know, I know all of this is going to be, going to be my deliverance. And, and maybe you hear, oh, he's going to be freed. He, he's going to get an acquittal. He's going to get a release. Interestingly, it's worthy of note that that's actually true historically. If Paul is in prison in Rome at the end of the book of Acts, as we've suggested that he is, we do know that in due time he's going to be released. And ultimately, he's going to go on from Rome to Spain, which has been his plan and hope all along. To the hinterlands of Spain, he wants to take the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that's going to happen. But as the apostle Paul is writing this letter, there's no certainty of that going to be unfolding. And yet he's certain. And yet he's confident It might be that in the context of this passage that the apostle Paul with his deliverance has received some special word from God. He was an apostle after all, right? He often received visions and and words from the Lord and he, he foresaw things of which were going to take place. The only problem with that suggestion is the text doesn't tell us that. There's nothing in the Scriptures, as we're reading through Philippians chapter 1, to suggest that the Apostle Paul is operating on some secret or special knowledge to say, I know that my release from prison is going to happen soon. I will be delivered through all this. Instead, I'd like to suggest the Apostle Paul is living like you and me. He doesn't know what tomorrow brings. We have things on our calendar Things on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday that we plan to get done. There's deadlines to get past. There's fun events that are on the calendar. But who knows whether or not your soul is going to be called home tonight. We have no idea. The days that have been allotted to you and me are already numbered by the Lord. And we don't know when it is that they're going to be up. There's a sense of recognition that we're utterly dependent upon God as we approach our own days. Is the Apostle Paul... Working from some secret knowledge? I don't think so. What the Apostle Paul is meaning with regards to deliverance here is of a much greater and deeper kind. In fact, the word deliverance that he uses in this text is the word that he uses throughout his epistles to describe the kind of deliverance that we will experience when we stand before Almighty God on that great judgment day and are acquitted Fully and completely, and come into glory and the consummation of which we've all been designed for. It's that kind of deliverance that the Apostle Paul has his mind wrapped around. Paul's not looking at an earthly, temporal deliverance, he's looking at an eternal one. He's not focused upon Caesar and the earthly tribunal, he is focusing upon Christ in the heavenly courtroom. His his desire is to look beyond the pale of this life and say, no matter what happens, whether I live or whether I die, I will be delivered. I will be delivered. It reminds me of what the Apostle Paul will say in Romans chapter 8. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor that which is above and that which is below, nor anything else in all of creation is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's false confidence. No matter what it is that he goes through, no matter what situation and circumstance he passes through, he has confidence that his ultimate deliverance is in view because he knows what it is that God has promised and he knows what it is that Jesus has accomplished. You know, this is a picture of faith, isn't it? What what is faith? Well, there's many appropriate definitions to faith, but one of the best ones is to recognize that faith is acknowledging the future reality and the promises of God in the present so that those future assurances become present comforts to us. It's a beautiful definition of faith. It's resting in the acknowledgement of what God has promised and will accomplish and you know is going to happen, trusting them now, so much so that if I can put it this way, the future begins to break into your heart now. You see, the confidence of the Apostle Paul in an uncertain time and circumstances comes from the fact that he has set his sights towards the thing that will never change. In the midst of a world that's swirling, he is standing upon a rock that will never move. He has absolute confidence of his deliverance because the deliverance he's looking to is not to Caesar nor to his guard. He's looking to Christ and his finished work. I think one of the questions that we have to ask ourselves as we approach a text like this and with this point that's in front of us, do we really know the kind of confidence the Apostle Paul is sharing with us here in this text? Do we know that personally? Take a bit of an evaluation right now in your own mind and heart. What's wrecking you? What are the anxieties? What are are the worries? What are the uncertainties? What are, if I can put it this way, what are the waves that are crashing up around the foundation of your life and you sense that all the sand... Uh, of which your life is built on, are being washed away. And it stresses you and it worries you as to what's going to happen. And you've forgotten the fact that underneath all of that sand is a rock. And there's no wave that can move it in this world. The comfort and the confidence of Paul in this passage arises from the fact that he is a man who is living the future now by virtue of his faith. Now, that's not the only thing that the Apostle Paul teaches us in this passage, but that's a great assurance, isn't it? It's a tremendous assurance. That we don't have to look to the headlines of today's paper in order to be comforted about what's going on or not going on. That we don't have to look at our our latest blood work coming out of our most recent physical. To have confidence in life. That we don't have to look at our bank account. And feel good about the way things are going to be. The deliverance of the Apostle Paul and the confidence of the Apostle Paul is not built on such earthly things. It's built on a heavenly reality that naught can move. Now as you can feel that firm confidence of the Apostle Paul, I want you to see secondly... That not only does he show us confidence in the midst of uncertain times, he shows us what direction in the midst of an uncertain future looks like. How do you you live from this place? How do you go and make decisions? It really is a bit of a decision-making exercise that the Apostle Paul gives us in this text. And I love it because in verses 21 to 26, Paul kind of peels back the layer of his own mind a little bit for us. He lets us see into how it is that he reasons. How it is that he's thinking. He's he's doing what I know I'm prone to do, which is to have conversations with myself. To talk to myself and think through things and evaluate and and weigh things. And, And what I love about it is Paul's doing that, guided along by the power of the Holy Spirit on the page so we can see it. Here is his internal dialogue. And his deliberations about how he will use his time. How he will make decisions. How will he direct his life in light of an unknown future. He says to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to choose to live in the flesh that means fruitful labor for me. Yet... Which I shall choose? I can't tell. I'm, I'm hard-pressed between the two. In fact, my desire is to be with Christ, for that is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. You see him sort of bouncing around in this text. He's weighing this, and he's evaluating that, and he's considering, if we can put it this way, he's pulled out a piece of notebook paper, and he's drawn a line right down the center of that paper, and, and he's given two categories that he's going to make a list. We could say a pro and con list on if he lives, here's what it means, and if he dies, here's what it means, and then he wrestles with his desires in the midst of it. And having this conversation out loud on the page, he teaches us something about how it is that we direct our lives with an unknown future. What what does he say on the first half of the notebook paper as he puts that little title at the top? If I am to live. That's the title. If I am to live, what's that going to mean? Notice his confidence. It means fruitful labor for me. That's what I know is going to happen. Now some of you are thinking, that's awfully arrogant. How, How does he know That if he lives, there's going to be fruitful labor for him. How can he be so, again, certain, so confident that that's going to happen? Well, I'd like to suggest that Paul's not being arrogant. Paul Paul knows, as he had written in another one of his letters, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. He he recognizes that he doesn't have the ability in of himself to bring forth the spiritual fruit that needs to be brought forth. But what does Paul know? How can he say that fruitful labor is coming for him if, by God's grace, he is going to live? He can say that by virtue of what he knows God has called him to. By what he knows God has called him to. And what has God called him to? called him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. God appeared to him. Jesus appeared to him and commissioned him to the work of the gospel. To plant churches all along the Mediterranean and Aegean seas, And to share and evangelize to, to the Gentiles. Paul has been the most fruitful missionary that the pages of the New Testament reveal to us. He has been utterly fruitful by virtue of the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through him. And God has called him to that work. And so Paul says, if I know what God has called me to, and I've seen his faithfulness in the past to use me in fruitfulness, I know that if he causes me to live, it's because he's not done with me. He's not done with me. He's got work still to accomplish through me. Fruitful labor." For me, that's incredible confidence, isn't it? Some of you may be in here in this room or thinking to yourself, I don't know that I have uh, confidence that I can be fruitful for the purposes of Christ in my life. I don't see how that's going to happen. The Apostle Paul is saying, Look at his faithfulness in your past, take into heart what you know he's called you to as one of his children. Trust and find comfort in the fact that if you're still breathing, he's up to good things with you. He's up to good things with you. You think, well, that's really easy for the Apostle Paul to say Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus and said these specific things. He says those same things to you in in the word. And they're no less authoritative or powerful. In fact, summarized beautifully in our Westminster Confession of Faith is the vision and the call for your life. Do you know what it is? In case any of you are wondering what your vision and call in life is, let me just enlighten you for just a minute. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's your calling in life. It's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That every part of your life would be saturated with the reflection of God's glory and the deepening of His enjoyment in you. That's the calling of your life. You know what that means? If you're living, your call to glorify and enjoy Him is the front and centerpiece of what the Lord has called you to. So you're a nurse. You're not actually a nurse. You're a nurse cleverly devised and disguised as a witness-bearing, fruit-bearing instrument of God to bring Christ glory in the world. That's what you are. And you do it through nursing, touching a a myriad of different lives, those who cross your path, who who need both physical care and, and words of encouragement and opportunities by which to make riches known and a much deeper health and physicality. You've been diagnosed with a disease, suffering. What do you do with that? It limits deeply your ability to go and do what it is you'd like to go and do. What would it mean to not immediately go, what's most important about this disease and suffering is that I get out of it. That we we heal it. But the most important thing about this disease and suffering is that the glory of God shines through it. So that whether He frees me from it or whether He doesn't, His glory shines in and through me because I'm merely an instrument for His glory and His joy to be expressed. Some of you come into a windfall of money. You're thinking, yes. Yes that old uncle that you never met died and left his entire multi-million dollar fortune to you. We all want this uncle. <laughs> you get the phone call and it's a check bigger than you've ever seen deposited into your account and you think to yourself, I'll never have to worry about money again. I, I can now go to Cabo anytime I want to. I, I can't. There's nothing to hold me back with regards to the financial resources that I had. you know what God's actually calling you to as a believer? He's saying, how might you glorify and enjoy me and display my generosity and my faithfulness in and through the resources that I've granted to you? That's what he's saying. You see, you see how the clarifying of the call of God is to the providences that he brings into our life? It begins to change the way that we look and view at things. And so the Apostle Paul is saying, listen, God has called me to this. And he's shown himself faithful in the past. If I'm still breathing at the end of this thing, it's because he's got fruitful labor for me. There's ways in which his glory is supposed to shine in and through me. Now, there's another category on here, though. Did you notice this? It's a category that, that Paul's actually partial to. It's not if I live. It's the category of if I die. If I die. And the, and the thing he writes under the category if I die is Gain. Now that in and of itself for some of us is deeply convicting. Because we are working extremely hard to not die. And the apostle Paul is holding his life very loosely for the purposes of the Lord Jesus. If he wants me to die, it'll, I want to honor him with my body and glorify him. If he wants me to live, fruitful labor for the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is very open, death or life. And in fact, he even makes his personal desires known. In this text, if I had to choose between the two, I'd rather depart and be with Jesus. It's so much better to be, depart and be with Jesus. It's so much better to depart and be with Jesus. That's, that's really what my heart uh, longs for. He doesn't, he doesn't even suppress his own desires here. He, make, he makes them known. That would be far better. You can even see how the Apostle Paul is thinking about death by the use of that word departure. Notice it's not an end for him. It's a passing from life into greater life. That that word departure is used very often in, in a military context. And it usually means for soldiers that are breaking camp and leaving a place and going to another place never to return. The apostle Paul says, when I think of death, I don't think of it as an end. I think of it as a departure. I think of it as moving from this life into the life." That is of greater presence with the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is far better to be there than to be anywhere else. Now, as Paul looks at this, he says, My desire would be to die and to be with Christ. If I live, I know fruitful labor for me. Here's my calling, what God has called me to. But as I look at everything, here's what I suspect I suspect I'm gonna live. (laughs) I suspect I'm gonna live. I suspect I'm going to remain and be with you because as I look and see the needs of the gospel for advancing in our own time, you, the needs of the Philippian church, and as I consider the others that are out there presently, the situation of things, I'm just i pretty convinced that I'm not done and the Lord has more work for me to do. Now we know that historically, that that's actually going to be true. When Paul writes those words, he doesn't know all of what that's going to mean and entail. But it is going to be true as he takes the gospel to far further than it's ever gone before after he leaves the context in Rome. But the Apostle Paul here is saying he is committed to following the call of God, whether it be death, whether it be life. But as I look at it, I tend to think I'm going to remain because I think there's more work to do you could probably you could probably hear in this, and maybe some of you have been in a circumstance where a loved one who is not very old hasn 't lived much of life has has maybe maybe found themselves with a diagnosis where they're it 's uncertain as to whether they 're going to live and and in that uncertainty the the question sometimes arises do we pray for um, healing or, or do we pray for the grace of departure because of maybe the suffering that they're going through and maybe you can hear even in that loved one's uh, voice I, I long to be with, with Christ my, my heart wants to be in the presence of Christ but as I look at my children as I look at my grandchildren as I, as I see the few years that I've spent so far on this earth convinced of this, I would, I would love, I'd love to remain and continue to labor and it be fruitful labor for me in, in the midst of a life that still unfolds here on the earthly plane. You, you could probably hear a, a circumstance or a life such as that. And I think in some ways that's the apostle Paul's heart here. He does not want to stop short of anything that God has given to him and leave it undone. <laughs> He wants all his accounts to be closed before he goes. He wants everything that the Lord has given to him to be accomplished before he goes. And you can see as he's reasoning here on the page, this direction in the midst of an unknown future. He says this in verse 25, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. I think, again, that's a statement of confidence. So that in me, notice what he says here, in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Isn't that a beautiful statement? So that in me you might have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Now if you can, if you can imagine it, Paul loves this church at Philippi, and this church at Philippi loves the Apostle Paul. They would want nothing more than to lay their eyes on him and he on them. And he says, I I can envision a future in the midst of fruitful labor where I show up on the scene in Philippi and, and we, as it were, run across the field to embrace one another in love, so excited to see when I can envision that future that the Lord would bless you with that. And you know, when I think about that, I don't think about how much you love me and how much I love you. I think of what that's going to do for your faith. If you were to see me show up again in Philippi, you would have ample reason to glorify Christ. You see how saturated Paul is here in Christological focus and thinking? He's completely focused on Christ. He says, What I get joy in, in your progress in the faith, is thinking about how you're gonna give joy to Christ if I were to show up. It's an incredible expression. If you can just work your way through the arc of this passage, the Apostle Paul is saying, I know that one day I'm going to be delivered, whether by life or by death, and I just want to honor Jesus with my body. If I live, fruitful labor for Christ is the only thing that I know would be the, the, the end for which the Lord would keep me alive because he's called me to a work and he's shown himself faithful, and I'm certainly willing to take up that call. But if I had my druthers, if I were to die, I'd rather depart and be with, be with Christ. But as I look at everything, I think I'm probably going to remain and continue to, to work. And, and what's going to be beautiful is that when I show up on your doorstep church at Philippi, I'm going to see on your face the worship and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and how he's provided above and beyond anything we would hope or imagine. And that keeps me going. That keeps me going. If you can hear in the Apostle Paul's argumentation, his reasoning here. Something of what we see in the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of his earthly tenure. When he in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane is, is praying and sweating great drops of blood. And as he cries out to his father in the midst of the anguish, he cries his desire. His desire is that this cup would pass from me. And yet he is wholly resigned to not his will, but your will be done. You see the reflection of the Apostle Paul here. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. But as I look at everything and I consider who my God is and how he loves and cares for his church, I'm probably going to remain and probably have to suffer more. And indeed he does. Paul in the unfolding of his life has another He has multiple sufferings still to come until, as tradition teaches us, he was crucified himself in service to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see the heart of Christ shining in and through the Apostle Paul when he says, in a very real sense, I desire this, but not my will, but your will be done. Not my will, but your will be done. Do you see what what is displayed for us in the gospel is this glorious truth. That the Lord Jesus Christ said no to that which he wanted in the flesh at the end of his ministry as he's looking at the suffering that is his on the cross. He said no to his internal desires in order to say yes to the will of his Father because he had set his love upon the people of God. Where is Paul's love? On the people of God. To remain with you. Fruitful labor to serve with you. His love is on the people of God. His love is on the mission of Christ. When you you see that he is channeling in a very real sense the very heart of Christ in, in the midst of his ministry, I hope what provokes inside of you is to say, I want more of that heart in me. I would love to see this kind of reasoning happening inside of me. When I, when I draw lines on a paper and I, and I consider pros and cons of it doesn't often look like this. And I think it should. And I would love to see myself grow in the midst of this. If you're asking that question, how might I actually grow to become more shaped after the image that we see pictured here and exemplified by the Apostle Paul, there's actually hints in our passage. There's actually hints in our passage. There's a lot of ways that we could look at it. But I want to just show you the hints that we see there in the passage. Look at verse 19. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Isn't that interesting? Paul's future hope of deliverance when he stands before Almighty God at the end of time for vindication, rests on that he would be carried along by the prayers of others and the help of the Spirit of Christ. Maybe you have thought to yourself, I, I need three or four good disciplines to just really stick in order that I could keep this behind and before me all the time and fan into flame constantly the things that God is calling me to That's a great suggestion The discipline, spiritual disciplines, especially very important to the Christian life. Notice what Paul says. He says, all the help that I need to answer the call that God has given to me comes from outside of me. Paul is not dependent on himself in the work of the mission that God has called him to do. He is dependent upon the church, the prayers of the people and the help of the Spirit of Christ. If if you are at a position where you say to yourself, "I am," there's no way that I am going to live as Christ has called me to live unless God does an amazing work through the help of the Holy Spirit and the work of the saints around you. If you're in that spot spiritually, you're in a great space. If your confidence is coming from the fact that you're smart and good enough and doggone it people like you, If you're coming from that place, you're going to fall flat on your face. You're you're operating still within the kingdom of the world, not from the kingdom that is not of this world. Our growth in the Christian faith doesn't come from deeper reliance upon our gifts, skills, and abilities. Our growth in grace in the Christian life comes from our complete dependence upon the Spirit of Christ and the prayers of others. May I say it even this way. There are reasons that you may not be growing in the Christian life right now because you have never asked someone for help in prayer. Right now. There may be besetting sins in the course of your life. There may be patterns of iniquity. There may be a, a, a neglect of a call that you know that the Lord has placed upon your life but you're unwilling to take because of fear. And you have never asked for the help of the prayer of the saints who are around you. When Paul says he's utterly dependent on it. Even as he looks to the deliverance that is to come. What what an instruction that is to us. What an instruction that is to us. That the help of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, is the only one who accomplishes the work that he's called us to. This This is the... The paradox of the Christian life. God has called you to glorify and enjoy Him. And there is no way that you can answer that call apart from the Spirit of God doing a mighty work within you. There is this disciplined dependence that's at the very center of the Christian life. A committed receiving of help from Almighty God. At the point where you feel completely inadequate and totally committed is a place where the Lord is beginning to do His work. In a place where you are utterly competent in your mind and committed, you're going to fall flat on your face. And in a time where you are not committed, you're going to find yourself shirk your responsibilities and don't go the bypass of the Christian life to dead ends. But when you begin to see that the help of the Spirit of Christ and the dependence of the prayer of the saints is the means by which our deliverance comes, is the sources the apostle Paul is dependent on, you begin to realize what Paul is saying here is that he's modeling for us the gospel. You see, that spirit of Christ is the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. The same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, Paul says in Romans 8, dwells within you. Now don't tell me He can't do a mighty work in you. If He can bring our Savior and King back to life from the grave, there is no death and there is no darkness in you that He can't overcome by His grace. As the Lord continues to increase our own dependence upon the Holy Spirit, seeking for the prayers of God's people this day, I pray that you would find underneath your feet a rock A rock. A strong place in which to stand. And increasingly a place where you could say with no equivocation, whether by life or death, I just want to honor Jesus in my body. I want to honor Jesus in my body. Let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, we would ask that you would do what we have been reflecting on and considering that you would begin to do this work in the midst of us. That, that you, would, you would give us a, a sight of faith that would look to the eternal rather than the temporal. That you would give us deliberative processes by which we evaluate and weigh the things of this world and decisions and directions based upon the glory of Christ. And we pray, Lord, that in the end you would give to us such increasing dependence upon our need for the Holy Spirit and the prayers of the saints that we wouldn't think of doing anything apart from them. Father, you know exactly what needs to happen in the hearts of all of us here in this room. And so I simply ask that you would right now begin to work a mighty Powerful transformative work in the lives of us, your people, giving us an increasing love and affection for Christ and a deeper dependence on your spirit and the prayers of your people. Just begin to do that right now in the hearts and lives of us. Would you begin, Lord, to bring to the mind for all of us here the areas where we have struggled and suffered and really haven't asked for help? Either help from your spirit. To bear up in enduring it or help from your people in prayer. Forgive us for the ways in which we have sought to bring in your kingdom or follow your mission in the strength of the flesh. And Lord, I pray that as we attempt to do that and when we attempt to do that, that you would make futile those efforts until we come back to our dependence upon you and look and expect with confidence and with hope that you will answer the requests that are according to your will. Father, as we, as we lay our hearts open before you in the midst of this prayer, we would simply ask the glory of Christ and his honor, no matter what the cost. Because we value his glory and honor over any other cost in the world. So Lord, hear this prayer and now answer it according to your will. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.